From the mind of David Lynch comes a modern-day masterpiece so startling, so provocative, so mysterious, that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. Okay, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, tonight we're going to be discussing David Lynch's Blue Velvet, which is a movie that I always intended to watch. Um, but, you know, I think this is the, the first time I've watched it in full. Um, but anyway, introducing the panel, uh, I'm here as always with Jay Andrew World. I can How's walk good? like a chicken. <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> All right, Christina Oaks. Uh, I'm Christina on Twitch. Yes, uh, my loud singer arc has been confirmed. <laughs> but right. I'm not going to sing. Once again, joined by Ravana. Reactions on the TYT uh, Twitch. Christina came here just to flex on me. I'm not in my loud singer arc. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the great Anna Kasparian, uh, you know, the executive producer and host of TYT's main show and uh, Weekends at Jacobin. All right, What's how's up? it going, everybody? Strange movie. Um, and any, any first impressions, I guess, starting there. I, I'll jump in. I'll, I'll, I'll take the bullet because I feel like I might be the only one who thinks this about the movie. I saw it for the first time last night, and I hated it. <laughs> and it's, I, everyone loves Blue Velvet. Like I, I, So I watched the movie, and then afterwards I read a bunch of reviews about it. And it also kind of like, it left me a little bit confused. So I wanted to understand um, more about it. And uh, it, it's considered one of the greatest American films of all time. So I, I just want to just get that out of the way because I'm apparently an outlier in, in not enjoying it. Um, for me, it was just reading about it and understanding what Lynch's um, objective was in, in putting that film out. I think the idea was good. The execution wasn't great. Um, I was confused most of the time. I didn't, I think part of the confusion was the fact that um, Kyle McLaughlin is awful in it. I think his, his acting is terrible and I can't really tell like what he's trying to um, like what he's trying to get across the screen in the way that he's acting in this role. You get what I'm saying? So a lot of times I was like, wait, but is he, is he actually into Sandy Williams? And Sandy Williams is played by Lauren, uh, Laura Dern in it. I don't, I just, I thought the acting was bad. I don't think that it actually executed the 
um, objective that Lynch uh, had with with putting this movie out. But with that said, given the fact that it was uh, released in 1986, yeah, it was it was like groundbreaking. Like think about how conservative the culture was back then, especially given everything that was taking place with you know um, the AIDS epidemic and all of that. So I get and respect that aspect of it. I just like I didn't get the objective until I read about it later. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, we recently did Showgirls, and it's kind of a similar thing in some ways. Like Showgirls was kind of, um, which came out a year after Blue Velvet did. I'm pretty, or I think, or no, a couple years, a few years after. I guess it was the 90s. Like a I was decade. Thinking, for some reason, I, I was thinking it was. For some reason, I was thinking it was 87. It wasn't. It was uh, Robocop. It was 95. So but, yeah, it was, was 95. 95. So, um, so no, so it's a few years a few years later, but still like a similar thing that, you know, at the time, I think that, um, the movies were so, uh, like, I don't like it was, it was incredibly controversial and had like sex as a main topic and had, you know, characters that you don't normally expect. And then watching it now on this side of, of, you know, of that time frame, I guess, um, there's so many things that are so much worse than both of these movies that have come out. So it doesn't really feel like watching it on, on that side of it, that you're watching something groundbreaking. I actually yeah. like fully agree with Anna on everything except for that I loved the movie. I loved the movie a lot, but wow. there is like uh you you wonder while you're watching like what is Jeffrey's motivation? Like right. And it, I think it does have a lot to do with Kyle McLaughlin being very much a boy scout. And it's like I I'm struggling to get from you that you are like being enticed into this seedy underbelly of Lumberton like it, you you just I your motivation is like eluding me but I think I actually enjoyed that and I don't know if he like if it was intentional or if it's just like you know Kyle McLaughlin and me just constantly seeing him um as Agent Dale Cooper and nothing else <laughs> but like well, I, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed this that before I'm sorry oh no go ahead um I kind of I kind of addressed this before in the uh, Scott Pilgrim episode where, where I was mentioning how Scott Pilgrim was kind of like a blank slate we could put ourselves onto. Um, and I think Kyle McLaughlin in this movie is much the same way. Um, Scott McCloud uh, in Understanding Comics discussed how like a, car a cartoon is made simplified enough where we can place ourselves into it. And, and in a way, uh, Kyle McLaughlin's kind of sterile performance, uh, reminiscent of like Keanu Reeves or... or um, uh uh what's her name who played Katniss Everdeen um you know like Jennifer Lawrence. They, they're kind of an every yes Jennifer Lawrence yeah they're, they're like this every man or every woman or you know every person that we can we can all kind of relate to and put ourselves into it because they are vague enough as a human that we can uh relate to it that way if that makes yeah. any sense well and and I'd also say that I think David Lynch is putting kind of himself into Kyle McLaughlin throughout this movie because there's this weird voyeuristic element to it right he's like because he's trying to solve, he's like kind of wants to be a detective, it feels like, but then he's also like, you know, um, falls in love with Isabella Rossellini's, um, her like lounge singer character, um, you know, Dorothy, he falls like, or, you know, gets attracted to her, maybe not falls in love, but is like hiding in her closet, watching her get undressed. And then there's that, you know, that, that sex scene where she kind of um, puts her own trauma almost or tries to, you know, throughout that with the knife, like into him and gets him into this, um, hooks him into this uh, underbelly of, of sadomasochistic, um, you know, Lumberton. But um, I, I think that, you know, uh, David Lynch is kind of putting himself into that character as well. And as a director, we're not quite sure what he's trying to do with it either. So it's interesting that I think that there's a big parallel there. 
And I don't think David Lynch knows what he's trying to do with it either. Because I remember hearing a story Neil Gaiman was going to be writing a movie with uh, David Lynch, which sounds amazing. And apparently at the end of the movie, he gets he gets his phone call. And David Lynch is like, I thought of the end of the movie. The main character walks around his house and picks up an object and stares at it for a moment, puts it down. And then picks up another object and stares at it a moment, puts it down. And then picks up another object and stares at it a moment, puts it down. And then we reveal his house is on the moon. <laughs> and Neil Gaiman hung up the phone and said, I will never work with David Lynch. A lot of David Lynch's so, ideas feel like feel like high person ideas. Like he just is sitting yeah. there and he's like, yeah. like, hey, you know yeah. what? I have this idea. And then like the worst Way people ahead I, this time. <laughs> some of like some of like the worst hipsters that I know will be like, I totally get it. And I'm like, no, you don't. No, totally. You don't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, that's like, as I was even... watching it, sorry to inter interrupt you, but I just have to get this one point across. As I was watching it, I was like, this is the exact movie that his hipsters love to talk about and how they get it. And it's like a super obnoxious point because like no one gets it until, you know, you read about like what the objective of the film was, like what were the thoughts? And I get that film is like art, right? It's a lot of it is up for interpretation. You make what you want to make of it. Um, but, you know, the, the, the movie's point was actually really interesting, right? So just juxtaposing light and darkness, evil and good. And I, I think I think that that could have been executed a little bit better. I'm just not 100% sure how. I, I felt like throughout the entire movie, I was just confused. I knew that there was like a lot of symbolism going along, um, but I didn't really understand what that symbolism meant or was supposed to mean that's which you know kind of fails at the point of symbolism if you if you don't you know if, if it's not coming across to you like there's no point in having symbolism and then like uh, the audience is like well i don't really get all right like it's symbolizing something but you know <laughs> yeah i mean like, uh... I, I i liked it i um i don't feel it particularly strongly about it which is another parallel between this and showgirls where it feels like everybody either really really likes this movie or like i, I guess I mean, there's. I think the people that dislike this movie, or at least admit that they don't like this movie, um, is a, is a very small margin in comparison. But I, I think that I don't really, I didn't really feel particularly strongly either way. Um, I, I liked it, I guess, more than I disliked it. But it's kind of the, the same way I feel about Kyle MacLachlan and everything. Like I don't, I never, I'm never like this is a performance that blew me away, which is once again a parallel to Showgirls. <laughs> so the question is, Christina, do you really, really love it, or do you really, really hate it? I loved Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> like this was her first like serious work because she had been like a model and did like cosmetic cam campaigns for most of her career. And even though this film's quite controversial because the stuff that she had to do, she was born a controversy. She's the daughter of Ingrid Bergman and Roberto Rossellini. Her parents were having an affair while they were working on a film, and she essentially Ingrid Bergman was essentially canceled for having an affair and had to like move to Italy for like a decade. And so, oh, wow. yeah, so the, and there's a whole, uh, there's a YouTube channel called Be Kind Rewind, which looks into Ingrid Berman's like cancel, a uh, cancellation in Hollywood. So Isabella was probably thinking, you know what? I was born in controversy. I'm going to stay a controversy. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the reaction to her in this movie specifically, um, was incredibly like violent like people mm -hmm. kind of shunned her there's a story about her in the elevator with Catherine Hepburn and Catherine Hepburn like kind of uh goes oh you're you're Ingrid Bergman's daughter and she's like yeah and then she just walked out of the elevator as soon as she could like <laughs> so got ridiculous. off on a different floor yep. so it's like you know I I think that it's it's a it's a tough uh thing because I don't think that she was ready for that level of um 
of, of that rejection for this yeah. movie because it all centered on her. Nobody was really centering on David yeah. Lynch because nobody was expecting anything different from David and, Lynch. And her mother also did a lot of uh, like noir films and also was one of the earlier Hitchcock girls as well. So like she's like almost doing films that sort of resembled some of the things that her mother was doing like 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, the, the thing that I actually really liked about the film was the style reminded me a lot of Hitchcock. And I love Hitchcock films. So um, stylistically speaking, I enjoyed that. But again, it was just, it was like too much symbolism that and stuff that like was never really explained, right? So oh, the um, dream logic. Welcome to David Lynch films. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Like the the weird like breathing mask thing. Like what was that? Like, oh, I actually oh, like laughing a, uh, gas, right? I have, a, I, have a, I have a clip where uh, you know Dennis Hopper actually talks about it. So oh, that might be awesome. a good time to to bring this into it. Um, this is, I mean, the the story of how he got involved in his uh, role with it's actually really interesting, and I think this is the clip where he goes into it um, quite a bit. But he kind of he kind of had been rejected because it was like by Hollywood in general because he was such an addict by this point um, that you know it was just like kind of impossible to work with him. Like, you can kind of even see it in, like, you know, um, like Apocalypse Now, like, you know, um, that level of uh, stuff. So his reputation had been completely ruined by his addiction. And he kind of lobbied uh, David Lynch to let him be in this movie because he felt like this role as Frank was something that he, as an addict, like, um, or a former addict, uh, like, really, I guess, related to. There were a group of us that went, wow, if you take drugs and you drink and you want to be an artist, it's okay because that's what artists do, you know? Van Gogh said, hey, uh, he drank for a whole, I drank for a whole summer to find that yellow. He probably couldn't find the tube, you know what I mean? But it's not necessary to be an artist and to derange your senses like that, you know? Uh, uh, Meryl Streep is not a drug addict or an alcoholic. Dustin Hoffman is not a drug addict, an alcoholic. These are people that are really, really fine, fine artists. And uh, there's a lot of examples uh, in the acting uh, business today of people who are very straight, very hardworking people and don't derange their senses. Now, uh, for the parts that I play and for the kind of things that I ended up doing, uh, I guess I got my just desserts. Would I have been able to play Frank Booth uh, the way I played it in Blue Velvet? Probably not. As a matter of fact, David Lynch, who never was an alcoholic or a drug addict, who wrote it, he wrote the, the thing as helium that I was snorting, you know? And that gas mask. The gas mask is helium. So, like, you know, I went to him and I said, David, he had helium there. Helium doesn't make you crazy and, and derange your senses. It just makes you sound like Daffy Duck, you know? So I would do this stuff and I... And I, I said, David, I, I'm, I'm listening to my voice. I, that's all I hear. I said, let me, let me think of it like an amyl nitrate or a nitric oxide or something to derange my senses. And he said, what are those? And I said, they're drugs. Let me just show you what it would look like. Oh, oh look at that. Oh, oh, what are these? Oh. Don't say please, kid. And I do this since memory and I show him what it looks like. He says, oh, that's great. That's great. Do that. And I said, then if you want to dub this voice in later, we can do it later. But right now I can't, uh, I just can't, you know, do it. Okay. So he said, great. And he encouraged that. But like, you know, and I, it, only till recently did I think 
wouldn't it have been interesting? Now, I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't abused drugs and, and so on, that kind of approach to it. But wouldn't it have been interesting the way he wrote it? How scary Frank Booth would have been if he was a guy who just became Daffy Duck and said all those lines, that kind of sinister, just a voice. Mm -hmm. What a bizarre guy that is. So anyway, I'm just saying. So, there would so have like, been very know, different ways to achieve something ways. equally frightening or affecting. Right. But like, you know, so I wouldn't have probably ever come up. I wouldn't have come up with these other things. But you have people who get, or I, I can talk about Hoosiers and playing the alcoholic. Uh, I wouldn't have had that, that to draw on. But there are people who play. Look at Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man. You know, he went and researched it. I mean, it's the thing of researching it. You don't have to become... Uh, uh, what what's the I don't know what that disease is called that the that the man has in in rain. He's autistic. Yeah, autistic. Yeah, you don't have to be autistic. Obviously, he couldn't have been to like do the performance, but you can go and research these things. You can research drug addicts or, or what the effects of drugs, and you can research uh, this stuff, and you don't have to become one. Okay, that yeah. answers the question. I mean, it's, Which is, it's still kind of doesn't, I guess, in a way, because, you know, it's not like the way that it was originally written, but I'm yeah. wondering, because uh, Dennis Hopper, he's old Hollywood, I think, because he said that he had a drug problem. I'm wondering if his drug addiction started way back when he did Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean and Natalie Wood, because they did get, him and Natalie got into a really bad car accident. So I'm thinking... That's probably where it stems. So he's probably been battling. He was battling drug addiction for a pretty long time. Yeah. Well, he was famous. Like it kind of is something that dogged him to the point where he couldn't really get work. Um, mm -hmm. Like he he was just a real like he's a famous drug addict. Um, yep. And it became increasingly hard to work with. I think to the point where people are like, we don't want to have him in movies like with with our directors anymore because it's gonna go so over budget. It's gonna you know it's just gonna be fucked up. Like you know, so David Lynch didn't even want to cast him in this, and he lobbied hard for it. Was like, I I think that I'm the right person to do this as someone that used to be an addict. And there's like a, a David Lynch story where he's talking about how hard he pushed for it. But like it's an it's an amazing performance. Like I think even if you thought that every single thing in this movie uh was was you know was terrible and like but like like you can't deny that that performance i think is like you know kind of the, the golden the golden standard of evil i agree mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i agree it was very good i just have to point out though there is if he's doing whippets now that that's what he said he's doing whippets at the the very first time we are introduced to frank his voice gets higher that does not happen to you when you do whippets. You have the scariest, lowest voice in the world. So canceling. they got to get the drug use correct. You know, I'm saying their movie for inaccuracies. You like know, there, forty there years later, too many. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. If you're gonna, if you're gonna do the whippets, you got to have the right side effects from the whippets. It's uh, like being on ecstasy and not getting really, really, really thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> or touchy feely. This, oh, uh, yeah. this comes this comes out the same year as uh, Little Shop of Horrors too, with Steve <gasps> Martin as the as the oh, dentist yeah. that is sucking down the the nitrous oxide the entire movie. Yep. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So this, it's interesting that those are both kind of the same um, the same year. Uh, you know, because Little Shop of Horrors is obviously a, a stage play that was you know um, came out a long before like the movie did, but still. <laughs> um. Um. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Go ahead. Because no, I, I, I don't want to jump jump 
in different places. Like I'm no, no, let you leave. no. You, you totally go ahead. I was I was trying to think of um, where I wanted to take this conversation next. So, well, for me, I mean, the most jarring scene, of course, was uh, the rape scene, but that was a pretty big scene. So I, I didn't want to like skip ahead if you wanted to get to other stuff first. No, let's talk about it. Um, okay. Anyway. Yeah, I. Look, this is a personal thing. This has like really no bearing on whether the movie was good or bad, right? Um, but that scene was really, really difficult to watch. Like I, I struggled to get through it. Um, my body tensed up. I was watching with my husband. And uh, I think after that scene was over, he looked at me and he's like, do you like it? Like, do you like the movie so far? And I was like, I don't know, it's okay. And then he's like, I hate this movie, I can't stand it. <laughs> so I was like, oh God, I feel better, <laughs> right? But like, for me, it was like, the a lot of things were happening for me psychologically as, as I was watching that scene, right? First off, it's a difficult scene to watch. So you're already kind of like, for people like me, I guess, you're kind of struggling through that. But also like, you wanna understand as it's happening, like what the point of that scene is. And there's a lot going on. Like there's the actual rape itself, but then there's also, you know, um, there's uh, uh, Jeffrey Beaumont's character or Jeffrey Beaumont, that's the character's name, um, played by Kyle McLaughlin. Um, he's hiding in the closet and he's watching it go down. And you're like wondering the entire time, like, what is he thinking? Does this change anything? Like, is he going to save her? Like, I, I, I don't know. It was just like, after the scene was over, I was left wondering what was the point of that scene? Like, what was what were they trying to convey, right? And again, it didn't really make any sense until I read about the point of the movie in reviews later. And I think that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, it also follows after the scene where, uh, you know, she finds him in the closet and kind of um, starts kind of doing the... Uh, the, uh, the, the sadomasochistic thing to him and threatening him with a knife and then like she gets turned on throughout their thing and then you know starts to um like you know gets on her knees and then like this whole thing is happening and, and that those emotions i think are already incredibly conflicted when you're watching that right like it's you know yeah. you're watching something because you don't really understand like all right like it seems like he was trying to solve the 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 mystery that you know of the ear but then all of a sudden he kind of turns into this weird like voyeuristic character that's kind of like enjoying watching her get undressed and then she he gets caught and then she like, and then she seems like she's threatening him, but then also seems like she gets turned on. So like, you're, yeah. you're watching all of these conflicting things, and then enter for the first time, uh, you know, Dennis Hopper's Frank character, which is you know a whole other level of like, you know, you're watching like a small little bit of sadomasochism, and then you're given like a you know full dose of that rape scene. And yeah, and and one other thing, let me just note because like this was the thing that really stood out to me, like there there were these constant tight shots of her face as she was being abused, right? But the tight shots made it seem like she liked it. Like, like, do you get what I'm saying? Like she had this look of, like almost like this look of lust on her face. So I was like, okay, wait, hold on. Let me try to understand something. Like, did she just get raped? Or oh. is this like a weird kink? Like, you know, not no kink shaming, but like, is this a kink and she's in on it and it wasn't actually rape? Like I was just, so distracted by the billions of questions I had. And I just wanted it to be clear that this is a rape. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And, or, yeah. or at the very least, I think um, like a director and like a writer director that has more of a nuanced and like psychologically apt take on, you know, the many conflicting things that happen through sadomasochism and 
through like relationships like this that are so abusive and 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 toxic and and scary and evil and like so i don't think that david lynch necessarily is the person that can go that deeply into like the psychology of it throughout this movie because he's like oh let's you know let's throw in a bunch of weird symbols and then i'm going to try this thing and this thing which you know is great like it's a great thing in in a lot of david lynch's movies but at the same time it's not the thing you want when the movie is kind of uh, surrounding a psychological, like a very deep psychological wound that you're trying to kind of explore and 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 see the, you know, no pun intended, I guess, because I'm still scarred by uh, the brain sticking out of the, the cop's head at the end. But, you know, it's like... <laughs> I, I feel yeah. like Jeffrey being in the closet and watching wasn't confusing for me because right before he went in, Sandy asked, are you a detective or are you a pervert? Um, and he says something like... Uh, that's, that's for me, for me to know and for you yeah, to find yeah. out. And in that moment, I was like, this man's motivations are confusing. And because before that, I was like, oh, he's just interested. He wants to be a detective. And in that moment, I was like, okay, some other shit is going on. And I feel like the the joke there is that he doesn't know. Or like, mm. like that's the deeper thing there is he doesn't know what his motivations are. He doesn't know if he's a pervert or a detective um and you know it takes him the entire film to sort of figure that one out but i i it was hard that scene i agree it was very difficult to watch i i feel like the close-ups of her uh, appearing to enjoy it or find some sort of enjoyment in it, it speaks to her i mean i think that her husband was abusive to her as well i feel like that's cool. sort of evident throughout the movie because, you know, she she refers to Jeffrey as Dawn, that's her husband's name, and asks him to hit her in a way that it seems like, okay, this is something that she has had him, Dawn has done to her. And, like, I assumed that Dawn was, in, like, in with Frank in, like, in this shady business, this drug dealing business, like, murder business that they're doing. Um, and did something wrong and is now in trouble with Frank. And that's how he ended up where he is, but like was not a good husband to, um, Oh my God. What's I'm sorry. I can't remember her name. The character. Dorothy. Dorothy. Or, yeah. was yeah. not like a, cause when she talks on the phone, she's never like interested in talking to her husband. She wants to talk to her kid. Like uh, it doesn't seem like she's very motivated to be reunited with her husband. Uh, happy more ending, so her even, child. happy ending even kind of like the husband's dead but she doesn't seem to care about that part of it yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah. so Ravana, what you're saying right now like it, it helps me connect so many dots right because you're you're right about that you're right about her referring to her abuser by her husband's name and that was one of the other things I was having a difficult time kind of reconciling the fact that in the very end like she's so happy because she's finally reunited with her son but her husband's dead so I was like are they going to address the fact that her husband's dead? Like, how does she feel about that? But no, really great observations. You're right about that. I mean, yeah. I, I have no idea whether or not I'm right, because anytime David Lynch is asked what he uh, was trying to do with the movie, he just refuses to answer like a Sigma male. <laughs> like thinking of the <laughs> interview. He doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. The interview where they're like, uh, will you elaborate that on that? And he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, um, when it comes to like, 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 in like assault in movies um i always feel like there needs to be like some type of motivation for the character or like something has to come out of it otherwise it's just like pure shock value like in films like i spit it i spit on your grave which 75 percent of that movie is a rape scene 
Like that's something that you cannot like if you it's hard to stomach. So like when that yeah. scene came on in Blue Velvet, I was like, oh my God. But then again, I'm like, is she enjoying it? What's happening here? Yeah. What am I saying? Which once again is something that I think um a, a a director that's more psychologically engaged, I guess, and like thinking about this from a purely psychological standpoint would probably have something to say about the way that sadomasochism kind of uh, changes your brain and that you know the the um not not purposeful attraction but still the attraction to violence that she has and all of these kind of deeper psychological concepts that like i don't think that david lynch is just the right person to to necessarily tell that story um at the same time though i think it's interesting that the kyle mclaughlin character kind of is david lynch um like you know kind of bumbling his way through this entire mystery without like without any kind of deft hand in it without any kind of really understanding and things just keep, keep on kind of happening to him as he goes further and further into this yeah. world. Um, I, I think that that's kind of a masterful thing that, you know, it's almost like a self-awareness that, he, I mean, I don't know. He I don't even know if got scarred you know. as a child, like David Lynch, he saw like a naked woman walking down the street and he cried and broke down that for like forever scarred him. So that was like the inspiration for that one scene where she's nude. And I'm like, God damn, David Lynch! What the what? What was your life like? Because he pulls all these different inspirations in his work, and I'm like, what? Yeah, and, and what? Dorothy's named after the a character from Wizard of Oz, so so it makes things even you know stranger that way too. If I could switch gears for a second, I would just like to talk about the opening sequence of the film, and like I in in my mind, that's like a perfect opening sequence. I think it is fantastic. Yeah the way that it starts out just with the blue velvet and then you're seeing this beautiful perfect seemingly perfect town and it's just getting like more and more focused until you're seeing the bugs crawling over each other on it, below the dirt like uh, you know foreshadowing that this lumberton is not some perfect town there are some disgusting and horrific happenings just below the surface um and you know jeffrey un uh reveals those by just a tiny bit of digging i liked it a lot i don't know the colors yeah. are also I mean, fantastic it tells, it tells a story without really having any like words or dialogue in it right like the because it's first it's showing the town and then the father is is spraying like you know using the hose and then he has his stroke or i mean assumably like that that's what the and they never really go into what actually like you know well i thought happens, the hose but. was a bit of a metaphor too the way it got like crimped up and the same thing happened with his heart it was like you know um because david lynch likes to show um lots of different um like like opposites at the same time or 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 telling the same story with, with different stuff. It's, I, you know, the, you know, it makes things more surreal whenever he does it. Uh, Cause there's, um, and Anna, I'm just curious about what your thoughts on uh, the dream logic that, that, that uh, pervade through the film. Cause I always thought that that's one of, um, I always, I always think Lynch's work is not necessarily good or bad, but it's like, it, it's, it's fascinating. It's like the Texas mm -hmm. Chainsaw Massacre. Like, like you don't enjoy it. But like it, it, it gets something done, um, and uh, so so. Uh, but like uh, I haven't heard you address the dream logic yet, and I know, you know, I want to make sure I get that in before before you leave. Yeah, no, um, I, I that was more of what kind of confused me about the film because, like, 
as that was kind of like woven into the film throughout, I, like it made me question like, okay, so how much of it, how much of this is real? How much of this is a dream? Um, also like, you know, the, the film wants to weigh in on very serious real life issues, but then at the same time, there are elements of the film that are kind of like supernatural or not realistic. Um, I think the scene with the, uh, you know, guy with, you know, got shot clearly like his brain is like hanging out of his head, but he's standing upright while he's dead. Right. So I was like, is this real? Like, is this supposed to be happening in real life or is someone dreaming? It? Well, he like, seems like he had gotten like almost lobotomized. Like he had, mm -hmm. and, and they, and they alluded to it earlier when uh, she was talking about her son and she's like, they did something to his brain. They injured his brain. Um, they alluded to, you know, later on the cop's fate where he was going to have the same thing happen. Um, so I think he's just so he's lobotomized to the point where he really like can't do anything and he's on his way out like he's wounded but he's not dead yet which is I mean I, yeah, I don't know how you would figure that? that out like how do you how do you figure that out watching that film like I, I guess that's my problem don't get me wrong like I don't want like to be served everything because I'm a moron right like but I, I like symbolism that's why I really enjoyed The Shining. Um, because everything just kind of made sense by the time the film was over everything made sense whereas with this. Um, thank you for mentioning the lobotomized child because, like, did they ever? They never revisited that. Like, and the, the child last seemed scene, fine. At the, yeah, at the end, the child seems fine. She's talking about fine. her husband, not the child. They have the same name. Her oh. husband was shot in the head in her apartment. All right. See, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't get that from from. That's from what that I team. assumed. She doesn't. She doesn't seem to have any other concern for her husband at any point. Welcome to David Lynch films, <laughs> guys. This was fun. Yeah. Like, like, wait, wait like, like, like David. Like David Lynch walked so that like Darren Aronofsky, Wes Anderson, and Noah Hawley could run. It's funny because this is one of his least confusing films. <laughs> That's so funny. It's so funny. And like, look, I, I also think I should be clear in that there are there's a difference between like being entertained with a film and liking a film. Like mm -hmm. I was entertained throughout, right? But I just I, again, I don't want to be spoon-fed um, what the whole meaning of the film is, but I want it to at least be easy to interpret. And I just had difficulty interpreting like what the point of certain things were or what things were supposed to mean. And I, I shouldn't have to read about the film afterwards to understand what the objective was. That was like my big issue with it. But overall, I mean, I was entertained throughout. I was uncomfortable as well throughout, which is a good thing. You know, you want films to um, evoke um, the, like emotions. various emotions and all that stuff. So, I, you know, I respect that. I just think like, I, I almost felt like it was being too artsy and confusing for art's sake. And it's yeah. like, we got it. We get what you're trying to do. It's just like, just try to explain things a little bit better. You know, I think, I think that's the note I'm going to bring Conan in on because I know that he's been kind of uh, chomping at the bit with our, you know, of our uh, don't be mad at me, Conan. <laughs> Counterpoint to the last 45 minutes Blue Velvet is actually awesome. Thank you. That's all we have time for, folks. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> no, I, I think this is a very interesting conversation. I think a lot of these points hammers home why I actually was not so crazy about it first time I saw it, and I've seen it probably. A dozen times at this point and as time has gone on it sort of unfolded to me that some things that really bother me to begin with also kind of bother me but in a different way like it's sort of like oh that bothers me and like hey i can't wait to see this 
crazy ass thing that's going to happen next. And that's sort of like me as a David Lynch. I mean, I got a racer head picture right there. Right. Obviously I like David Lynch, but the man is not perfect. Like rabbits is amazing and practically unwatchable. Uh, frankly, from my perspective, I mean, I almost wore my Audrey Horn shirt to this, but I thought I would nice. actually dress up more like Dean Stockwell's character, which I think you know is not that much different than how I actually normally dress up on this. Yeah, show. no, it's not. You should, have, you should have done a little bit of uh, a little bit of makeup though, and done the uh, I, 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 look. I have the same kind it. of the hanging light that he sings into. I actually have that exact same uh hanging light thing and i was gonna do a whole thing. anyway but then i was just like ah, ah, oh my god so it's like <laughs> i am now the comment thing should come to life and i apologize to the very awesome uh, ladies on the panel uh, i think you're all very neat girls so uh, <laughs> but i you know i was saying in the comments like i have hard time with the the rape stuff too and i think it's 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 bad. Like it, it's it's not like a good thing. But I think it was important. What he was trying to get across, the monstrousness had to get through. I wish he had another way to put that forward. I think just the, not just this the violence, but the implied violence of uh, Dennis Hopper's character was like plenty. Uh, mm -hmm. But I get it. Like he wanted to show that it wasn't strictly. It wasn't like a uh, a victim victimizer situation. There were shades of gray. Which is why I actually, I used to despise when it's like the, the whole Colin McLaughlin, like, oh, what's he doing? He's, you know, being a scumbag. Ah, oh, that sucks. And then it was sort of like, no, it's shades of gray. This is suburbia, right? More, like, than, what, more than 50. I would say more than 50. I would say maybe 150 shades of gray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about those movies. But like, the, and Christina earlier referenced one of my favorite scenes from it, which is is the uh, when Isabella Rossellini, the amazing Isabella Rossellini, who was fantastic, mm -hmm. uh, is wandering naked through this suburban kind of idyllic 1950s style uh, Lumberton. And that is coming off a real experience that David Lynch had, where he just, he's a guy that takes images. He takes images. And he stores that somewhere in his weird old subconscious and that like bubbles up and becomes like primary characters and becomes entertainment. And for me, you have to be down for the ride mm -hmm. for that. And I am completely down for the ride. And again, I, I say this to someone that as much as I love Blue Velvet now, didn't love it at first. I was like, I thought it was like mid, mid tier Lynch, right? You know, I'm Twin Peaks ride or die. You know, like I I, I could go through the <laughs> whole thing. But, but like things like the I have your disease in me now. Like that's a heavy yeah line. yeah yeah like that's that's like that tells you like where he's and it's like stuff's decaying under the surface of this suburban idyllic lifestyle you know and and I think that I think that's something that he he excels when he has that sort of it's like hey everybody the fifties were cool but also here's all this rotten stuff that was going on underneath and that's what Blue Velvet is it's actually his first foray into that which I think he mastered with Twin Peaks but I, I again. Counterpoint, Blue Velvet's actually awesome. <laughs> yeah. No, Conan, you just made such a great point. Because, I mean, you know, Isabella Ros Rosalini's character is is also a, a really great symbol for what you're, what you're talking about. Because she's this beautiful performer, right? She's this singer at this club, and she's singing this beautiful song, incredible voice. And for someone who doesn't know what she's going through, all you see is that beauty, that perfection. Um, but under the surface, she's experiencing such deep trauma and abuse and pain. So just her her role as a singer is, is, a, is a great symbol for what you're talking about. You're right.
Yeah. And who and knows? Maybe palpable. It's like you can you yeah. can feel it. You're just and like, the song "Blue Velvet." It's like a perfect description of what her character is going through. You know, if you yeah. really pay attention to the lyrics, I still see "Blue Velvet" through my tears. It's clear. You know, it's almost like you know, on the outside, everything is fine and beautiful, but on the inside, things are just crumbling or and there's also there's there. also i think beauty there's beauty in pain which is um you know kind of a crazy uh, like a crazy notion i guess to put into a, a song that's really on the nose like blue velvet but like you know there's there's kind of beauty in this pain like literally like the the, the blue velvet uh you know piece of the dress that he's carrying around with him is like something from her as much as you know the disease is something from uh Kyle's, like, you know, I mean, like his character, like it, it, he's carrying this around with him, and it's something of beauty. But at the same time, there's so much pain behind it. And Isabella Rossellini's character is the same thing. Like she, she's beautiful, and she's kind of radiant on stage. Maybe not the best singer, but you know, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, she really had to practice. I think, like, they didn't think that she was going to pull it off, but I think she practiced and practiced and practiced, like with the uh, with like a trainer or something like that. Like a they didn't uh, have auto tune back then, you know. They, they sure did. Uh, that story that Christina's talking about is actually incredible because it yeah. also sparked. Uh, so, the, so, what actually worked was her doing the arrangement with Angelo Badalamenti, who Lynch is the first time he ever worked with him. And that started like a decades long partnership that stands to this day. And he actually said that if it wasn't for the interpretation of that song, he doesn't feel like the movie is going to be because he's like, you know, feel, I feel it. I feel everything. I'm David Lynch. I've got weird hair. Uh, and. <laughs> He's not wrong, but because like that movie, you know, he's not wrong. His hair is weird. His hair is But that song, weather reports. I love his weather reports. I listen to them every day. I don't live in LA. I don't need them, but you don't. Need it's nice to say good morning, David Lynch. <laughs> I'm it, glad that nice the weather's good there. <laughs> but, but the song, and especially that version of the song. It's such an underlying theme throughout the whole movie. And and then Forrest, we've talked many times because, of course, uh, oh, maybe you didn't notice the guitars in the back. I'm a musician. Uh, <laughs> but like music can be so important and, and tie a film together, but it also can rip it apart if it's used poorly. And this is a perfect mm -hmm. example of a song used so well that love yeah, Hans Zimmer. no needle like... drops to be found in this film. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And I think that's I think that's where bears mentioning, and not the least of which is that I think um, I'm a big Badalamenti fan. I love all of all of the stuff that those dudes do together. I think that it's a rare example of like two brilliant artists kind of bringing out the best of each other. And I think that that's a, this is the first example of that. So it's sort of like uh, year zero, if you will, and that's a Batman reference for Andrew. <laughs> and it's also the it's the second um, collaboration between Kyle McLaughlin and. Um, david lynch which i mean obviously we watched dune for that one episode the like the first dune and uh you know didn't seem like necessarily yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> he, well so it kind of feels like this is the first realized um the first fully realized uh use of, of kyle mclaughlin that he has um and, and it's also the first um uh absolute batshit love scene that kyle mclaughlin's involved in where, where somebody's just going completely <laughs> off the because like Show there's girls. a theme. There's a theme to oh, it. Oh, yeah. episode. Him and, like, like um, Jesse by the bell just like watched uh, Blue Velvet and goes, "That's what I'm gonna do. That's how I'm gonna orgasm." <laughs> so, uh, so Anna, did did Conan did Conan say anything to you know transform your uh your your opinion on Blue Velvet at all? <laughs> well, okay. So the thing that I I'm 
encouraged by is that he didn't like the film the first time he saw it. And so I do want to rewatch the film like with this, I guess, better informed lens um, because there have been a, a bunch of movies that I ended up loving, but the first time I watched it, I was not a fan of. So it's, it's somewhat likely that I might appreciate it a lot more um, upon watching it the second time. But yeah. for me, the thing that really stood out was the example of um, ugliness beneath the surface of like extreme beauty. Um, because I, I did notice that theme throughout the film and that's a powerful message. And I think that's a powerful message that resonates with everyone on different mm. levels, right? We all know what that's like in, in various parts of our lives. I mean, I know what that's like based on how people perceive what I do for work and what it's really like doing the work I do, right? Yeah. It's like, on the outside, it's like so glamorous and so awesome. On the inside, it's fucking torture yeah. sometimes, you know? So we got yeah. you though, you know that. <laughs> yeah, I know, you guys are amazing. It's hard to be a, a, a neoliberal CIA apologist uh, establishment <laughs> show. Made by Soros and all those. I was gonna, I was gonna try to work in a joke about uh, Beatles coming out of Ma Madeline Albright. Like, you <laughs> <laughs> that's all. If I may, oh, and I don't want to hijack the show, but I guess it's kind of what I do. Uh, can we just talk about how goddamn brilliant the, the late, great Dean Stockwell's character is? Because he is not on screen that much. Mm -hmm. But what's one of the things you remember about Blue Velvet? Oh, yeah, he was singing that Roy Orbison song. And like this crazy whack Dennis yeah. Hopper character who is scared of nothing. He's an insane person. He, he's He's... The most wild card of wild cards. And he is deferential to the Dean Stockwell character. So what is mm -hmm. that guy like? Why is like, like what's his story? And we don't even know because and all the affectations are all Dean Stockwell being like, I'm going to take this and do this with it. And Dave Lynch is like, great, keep doing that. And you have like, you have like a young Jack Nance. You have um, uh, uh, Chucky. Uh, what's what's his name? Uh, oh, that's what I remember from. Brad. Uh, uh, Brad, yeah, Brad. Brad. Dwarf. Dwarf. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like the gang and everyone's like, oh, we're going over to, you know where we're going. Oh, man. And then it's just to see him so this wild madcap, like cartoon villain character just become like almost his sidekick. Right, that's crazy, and and he's doing this like drag show practically. Yeah, yeah. and this, with this quiet charisma too. Like 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 you know, oh. let's yeah. just not forget how charismatic uh, Dean Stockwell. I've never uh, seen him as charismatic, and I've watched Quantum Leap, and I've watched um, um, Battlestar Galactica. We just and, watched. And, and, uh, we just watched, watched Paris, Paris, Texas. Texas. Yeah, last week, and that's <laughs> yes. like a. And, and that's like, like his other he's biggest never role. been this charismatic on, on anything, even on his it, appearances on Enterprise. It's like, so I would, uh, I know it's not good to make an Alec Baldwin reference, but Glengarry Glenn Ross, he's barely in that movie. But love it or loathe it, it's a memorable freaking like five minutes or whatever it is. And in that same way, it's like Dean Stockwell defines this movie in a way that like no one can understand that character. But well, all they have to understand is his relationship to uh to frank which is a i have a character. i have a i have a clip that uh of um of, of dean stockwell finally i mean as a character actor obviously being in in things for i think he was in uh seven decades of movies pretty much without like really retiring i think he's a child he, actor right yeah he started mm -hmm. and that's why he always looked at after out for uh other child actors because he knew like what a 
tough thing it was to be a kid and be acting. So he looked out yeah. for them, which is cool as shit. So he finally, so he finally gets to go on uh, David you. Letterman after this movie comes out, um, and after he gets his Oscar nomination, and David Letterman starts asking him a bunch of questions about uh, Blue Velvet. So I kind of, I, I found this and I wanted to play it. Dean Stockwell. <laughs> Dean Stockwell was his name. I have to ask you about the scene in Blue Velvet. This was this was without a doubt. Now I'm no movie expert, but without a doubt, one of the strangest things I'd ever seen on film under any circumstances. What exactly were you? What was the character? What were you doing? And and uh... I don't know what I was doing. I was going along just out of my imagination. I knew that there was a character in there that Dennis Hopper played, Frank. Right, we remember Frank, yeah, who, was, remember who Frank. was breathing out of a tank most yeah. of the time. <laughs> and he, he was... Frank needed professional help. Is it safe to say that? That's what was in the thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was obviously one of the blackest, irredeemable characters yeah. in yeah. recent history of movies. Yeah. And yet, in the middle of the film, he meets this guy that he looks up to and thinks is suave. So... <laughs> You, know, you were Frank's it. mentor. That's right. Oh my God! So I had to be pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. And I put the pill in his mouth. So I just thought of the 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 most bizarre character I could come up with, and if it wasn't bizarre enough. I'm but what, what what was the little what was the and I I guess for people who have not seen the film, this is meaningless, but perhaps they'll rent it now and hunt up the scene. But what was that little thing, that little clubhouse you ran there? What exactly was that? <laughs> you know, nobody knows. It, it, <laughs> That was Ben's place, and, and don't go there. Yeah, and and I'll get off this in a second, but this scene really kind of made a dent on you my... You really liked this movie, David. I did. You? I enjoyed the film, but I was really taken by this one scene, and if uh, unless I'm mistaken, you were kind of singing into a trouble light. Yes. It was... A, Dennis came up with that. Uh -huh. He found it over on the side. No one knows where that came from. Well, it was very peculiar, and congratulations peculiar. on a fine piece of work. For being peculiar. <laughs> yeah, Thank no. you. Oh gosh! <laughs> it's actually, it's actually really, it's really interesting. The rest of his uh, appearance is about how he's doing work for uh, for the for the Democrats under. Um, I don't, I don't think it was Mondale. I think it was um, what, what's, what's the? See, I don't, I don't even remember the next um, Democratic Dukakis. Uh, Dukakis. Dukakis. Yeah, I Ooh. think it was one. It was don't one blame it two. on Dean. No, but it was, it was one of the two. But obviously, even like even David Letterman doesn't want to talk about that part of his like activism and the you know the, the help he's giving to the Democratic Party. He's just like, let's talk about this movie, Blue Velvet. We got to talk about Frank. Like, what's Ben got on him? <laughs> can Can I just, uh, Forrest? I, I I would love to know what the ladies uh, individually think of the Ben character because I think the Ben character is just worth. Exp I mean, we could have a whole show about the Ben character, right? But yeah. I, the Ben character, I mean, clearly even Dean Stockwell doesn't know what the point uh, or what the purpose <laughs> of that character was. So I feel a little vindicated in noting that I just like, since I couldn't figure it out, I like immediately forgot that that scene. Like until you brought it up right now, it's like, oh yeah, what is the relationship with, you know, um, Ben, which is uh, Rockwell's character and um, uh, Dennis Hopper's character. Um, and I don't know what it is. And maybe it's just one of those things that's kind of like, oh, well, we leave it to you to interpret it any way you want. But it is fascinating that like, you know, Frank Booth is such a violent character who like carried out violence, not just 
you know, against uh, Rosalini's character, uh, Dorothy Valens, but also like toward other men in that scene, but did not carry out that violence against Ben. So I don't, I don't know what to make of it. Maybe Ben had some sort of like power over him. It seems like Frank Booth was like enamored by performers, but when it came to a female performer, he thinks, you know, giving into like my carnal like desires is totally fine, but you know, he's not going to like rape Ben. Right. Right. So I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. I have no idea. So the way I saw their relationship. So when, um, when Dorothy first discovers Jeffrey, the man in her closet, she initially starts to, you know, treat him the way that she's being treated by Frank. So I saw that relationship between Frank and Ben, Ben is the person who has this power over Frank that scares him, uh, but intrigues Mm. him. So he then in turn, uh, you know, tries to have power over other people like Jeffrey and Dorothy. uh, And it is, I mean, psychosexual, but, uh, and you clearly see, I mean, at the end of the song, he says, uh, you know, let, let's go fuck or something like that. You know, he's clearly <laughs> attracted to him in a way that he can't. Um, he, it, But I don't even think it's like that he's afraid to exhibit that behavior because he puts on lipstick and kisses Jeffrey right afterwards. I just think he doesn't have the power to do so in that relationship. So I sort of viewed it the same way that Dorothy originally treats uh, Jeffrey. And like, you are taking your frustration out of uh of this power imbalance on someone who you view lower than you on the the totem pole as it were mm. yeah i think uh we need a pre- uh, prequel <laughs> at <laughs> this point ben? i mean he does make young an ben? impact but that's just the power the of- chronicles uh, yeah there we go that's just the power of ray of uh roy orbison or whatever the, <laughs> the oh, country style yes. and- <laughs> Exactly. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, both, I agree with both Anna and Rayvana, you know, it's like, you don't understand the purpose of Ben, but I'm a, but Dean, man, he just, he just knocks it out of the park with what he has, what he's given. Like that shows you just how talented he is. He's like, like he's willing to do anything. (laughs) Yeah. The way it's like it's a big vampire, vampire energy, for sure. Yeah, yeah like, 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 like the way his lips are, are very, very pursed and red. Um, I just expected him to like smile at the end of the song and have these fangs, and it'd just be like, you know, from dusk till dawn, and all of a sudden they're in a vampire movie. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, and- I think that, well, I, I just, I just really think that also, um, when you see somebody like the Frank character that's evil to the point where like it's like unhinged evil that, you know, it's almost hard to take, like how, you know, because you can't understand any of his actions. He's, you know, hopped up on uh, on on the, the fucking, like, gas the entire time, the, like, nitrous oxide or whatever. Like, he's, you know what I mean? So he's running around. You can't, there's no high, like, you can't really tell why he's doing any of the things he's doing. And I think that it's important sometimes for um, storytellers to show that, like, he's not the source of evil. Evil's already existed. And in some ways, I think having him have a mentor that kind of uh, presumably um, added to that evil or 
probably did traumatize him in some way, probably did expose him to something like, you know what I mean? Like expose him to maybe not the disease, but expose him to, to something, you know what I mean? At, at the heart of this to turn that person the way they are, or at least to help turn that person the way they are. It's almost like, you know, um, you want to make sure that, that people know that like the, the arch villain of a movie isn't necessarily the only villain that's out there at the center of this town. And I think that I, I like, Anna, I thought that was a great point that I, ironically, as a performer, it never occurred to me that Frank's attracted to performers. It's just that manifest mm -hmm. very differently between uh, Isabel Rossellini and uh, Dean Stockwell. Uh, and, but it's, and, and I think that that's a key part to understanding who this dude is, right? Like he thinks of himself as some kind of like, you know, uh, freaking Al Capone type figure, like plus Elvis or something, right? Like in his own mind, he's a legend in his own mind this way. And I think that's very interesting. Cause like, what I also will say is that, like, of the main time I watch this, if you do watch it again, I'm not saying you will or not. If you're like me, you will be like, oh shit, Dean Stockwell mm -hmm. scene's about to come up. Let's go. Like, you get stoked for it. You're like, all right, I can't wait to see how freaking weird and awesome this is going to be. This is, this, this is going to be great. And, and what you just said sparked a memory um, that I wanted to bring up because one of the other, like, I guess, subplots, if you want to call it that, was the similarities between Jeffrey and Frank, right? Because there was that scene where Jeffrey, um, you know, ends up hitting uh, Rossellini's character. Um, and then th that also made me think about the similarities between the two in watching uh, Rossellini's character perform. They had very similar facial expressions, right? Like you have Jeffrey and Frank both watching her perform and they like seem enamored by her. Um, and so I, that, that's why I, I bring up that there, there seems to be some sort of admiration that Frank has toward performers. Um, but you're right. It manifests in different ways, depending on who we're talking about. In the case of Dorothy Valens, uh, it manifests in a, a, an incredibly violent, awful way. Um, and with uh, Dean uh, Stockwell's character, it seems like he just has this admiration almost to the point where Dean Stockwell's character has like some sort of power over him. But that I, I would like to have seen that explored a little more in the film. He is well, I mean, the drug supplier, the right? And he, yeah. Yeah. He's, so he definitely has that over him. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. He's got, no, the, he's totally got the, the candy colored, uh, you know, that they called the salmon, you know what I mean? He's, he's got yeah. them and he's, you know, uh, <laughs> Which that's, that's a boomer thing to like take a song and like that. And that's that's the drug. Okay, we get it. It's drugs. It's not that clever. <laughs> um, I it's also. I mean, it's interesting though. There's that. Oh, one drugs? Who knew? Oh, I'm from the 1930s. You see him, you see him dose uh, Frank's character and literally put the pill on his tongue. Um, they're like they're like in, in like a very in like a very um I think almost sexual yeah almost like sexual way like. like like a priest too, like like almost, you know, like a sexual priest and you know, yeah. Dennis Hopper is like a giving child. him communion. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, sometimes yeah. getting high is like going to church, so I get it. Take me to church. I think I, I think I played with sexual priests at the uh, Berkeley Square in nineteen ninety nine. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but uh Anna, you, you said you had a heart out at eleven. Um I do, unfortunately. Um, but this was great and I really, really enjoyed doing it. Um, so thank you for having me. And yeah, it was course. freaking awesome to do something with Christina and Ravana specifically. <laughs> like it's been, you know, I know yeah. the two of them well, like from the content that they create. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to meet you. Your idols. Anna. <laughs> All right, love you guys. Have a great show. Bye.
Bye. Be a neighbor. <laughs> All right. We have uh, we have Karthik joining us. Um, would the show yeah. would be too powerful with Karthik and Anna? <laughs> <laughs> the audience couldn't handle it. I don't think there was enough space on the screen. That's why. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to need a second monitor. <laughs> yeah. Can I introduce a topic that we have not discussed yet? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Sandy. Sandy, mm -hmm. you know, watching the film, Jeffrey is her, Jeffrey is to her what um, Dorothy is to Jeffrey bringing her into this you know despite her dad being a cop she has no connection to this you know uh other world that exists within lumberton he is being you know introduced to it through dorothy she's being introduced to it through him and i just i found it really interesting because she said you know there was like a bright light and like the robins came and all that bullshit that she said about her dream. And like, she very much viewed, <laughs> she very much viewed Jeffrey to be that person, but that's juxtaposed by the fact that he's bringing her into the, the, you know, the darkness that of Lumberton. I just, I thought it was like very well, uh, her character, despite, you know, you could write her off as just like, a side character is very well, you know, crafted into the narrative of the light and the dark uh, within the film. I think she's a super important character. I mean, I think she's the key to understanding the movie to a lot of the ways, because otherwise you just have a noir and I love noir. It's right? noir. November, by the way, <laughs> everybody. Yes. I don't know how to happy noir November to those who celebrate. <laughs> Better than no, not November. <laughs> yes agreed well uh, the 1940s noir uh, it's no nut november so you know yeah well and and let's be clear as much as uh you know from first viewing like maybe it didn't seem like laura Dern's character has a lot to work with uh I, I think she does an amazing job of providing a presence for like what is ostensibly as mentioned like you know a, a similarish relationship between um uh, jeffrey and uh isabel rossellini's character dorothy but also, like, it's the light in the dark, right? And it's it, like, I don't feel like it's subtle, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, I feel like it's pretty, pretty overt. But I think like, to... yeah, like Isabella Rossellini, Isabella is like, you know, dark beauty, you know, dark, dark hair, and you know, Ron like Laura is blonde, and it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just think there. it's interesting that Jeffrey is, you know, he is the gray, but when you're comparing him to Sandy. He is yeah. the dark side, and he's like the gateway into the dark side. Um, now I'm like thinking about the ear and how it was very important that it yeah. be an, a whole, like an opening into the mind. And he's like that for her into like this. I think I referred to it as this before the seedy underbelly of Lumberton. I don't know. I just think that like relationally, like every person has like, a, like an interesting, like to uh, Dorothy. Frank is the dark side versus her light sided. Like every character, and to Frank, Ben is the dark side to his. Like every single character has another character that, and I mean, I'm sure if we explored it further, Ben probably has a worse Ben. Ben too, if you will. I can't. I can't imagine. <laughs> this is I can't doorway imagine, to the dark I can't imagine side. who who Ben's mentor is throughout this. He's yeah, just like, where's that movie? <laughs> but yeah, I 100 yeah, uh, agree with that. I think there's a question the of like it uh, would be probably like uh, 
of you know an actual like Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> it's Joe. I mean, it's uh, Joe Pesci in uh, in JFK. That's what we're uh, supposed to take away. I think from. I say Joe Pesci in Casino, but oh, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we do it, my cousin Vinny? By the way, <laughs> we should. I, I'm down. I'm down to do that. I, I watched that movie found a year on the ground. Utes. Two youths. Did you say youths? Anyway, that's sorry. the uh, that's the that's the that's the Rittenhouse trial judge. The, the, <laughs> the monsters too going. soon, bro. Too soon. I, I was gonna I was gonna ask like on the question of Sandy. Um, I think like, and I don't know if this was uh, extensively discussed. I didn't get to see too much of the uh, show before coming on, but uh, maybe I should have like turned. Johnny, big time over here. Oh yeah, I was too busy. All right. <laughs> No, I was actually, I was actually asleep. Um, I had an alarm up. Uh, this is like, this is actually past my bedtime. So, you know, I had to sleep and wake up, uh, nap and wake up for this. But I just thought that I'd, uh, and again, like, I guess like this is kind of almost uh, timely because I'm, I'm asking something that's topical. Uh, when you're talking about David Lynch, you're talking about like dream narratives. Um, and it's often one of the characters who is on the screen who is dreaming. So in this, like, I wonder if uh, to answer your question and with the question, like, is Sandy the one who's dreaming the whole story or like, you know, which of the characters is the uh, is the story uh, like a dream of? Um, is it is it Jeffrey or is it is it his nightmare or is it like, uh, you know, is it Sandy's dream? Because she's well, talking end, about the Robins anyway. The end feels like it's Sandy's dream, right? Like the the light changes; it's like really bright, and you see the Robin, and the Robin looks really fake. And like the the you know the grandma, I guess Jeffrey's grandma or aunt or whatever she's supposed to be on the family relationship chart, um, is like, wow, I've never seen a Robin do that. Which, all right, land, but whatever. Um, like, um, <laughs> like, but the you know what I mean? so there's like there's a so there's I, that part felt like a dream to me more than the rest of the movie because all of the plot lines seem to be you know, uh, come together nicely and they've kind of put you, it feels like they put you, like David Lynch realizes that he's put you through this incredibly uh, sadomasochistic story and really like throwing a lot at you. And he's like, I'm going to give you a, a happy ending as a treat. But then the, even this happy ending the feels like- The first time a, he's ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> the first and the last. Yeah, I was going to say, and he's like, not for me. Not going to do that again. <laughs> but more like, oh, I, I guess- like, well, it's like the, the linearity of the narrative kind of like I think comes with Blue Velvet, which you don't get in any of, uh, I mean, practically any other uh, David Lynch movie, I think. Like, so um, that kind of is one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons why, like, it's it sounds like it's one of the characters' dreams rather than many characters' dreams, because other movies, you kind of don't know, uh, you know, which character is dreaming. There are multiple characters that could be like having interlocking dreams, just why, like, I always felt like it was kind of dumb that Christopher Nolan kind of did Inception and thought that he was like a genius, uh, you know, as if he was the first person who came up with the idea of dreams within a dream or something like that. Like David Lynch has been doing that for like 30 years, four years. Uh, yeah, <laughs> until, that's why, uh, that's why I say him. that like David Lynch walks so that like Wes Anderson and Noah Hawley uh, and Darren Aronofsky could run. Because I mean, Legion... It's a basically if David Lynch got a hold of like a comic and was able to do his own like comic show, Legion on FX by Noel Hawley would have been the result because it's all about dreams. You don't know what reality you're in. So I remember when I watched Legion, I was like, Are you sure this is a Noah Hawley? I'm like, This reeks of like David Lynch, in my opinion. Everything about it music, uh, aesthetics, everything. I never, so, I yeah, never got it, into it, Legion actually, as much as uh. 
Fargo, Fargo was happening. Like he, he was coming up with like, so he was filming Fargo at the same exact time that he was doing Legion. And uh, I, think I they're still very recommend Legion. So, I, so I let's shut Andrew out of the conversation because Legion. it's about comics. So let's not let him talk. But, uh, I, I, let me, Christina, let me just one up and say that Legion's awesome. And I saw Legion before I saw Fargo. And I think Legion is actually the best of the X-verse adaptations. Yep. But you don't need to know anything about any of that to enjoy Legion. And that's one of the things oh, yeah. that's really interesting. Oh, yeah. I cosplay as Lenny and, in Chapter 6, goes, so it's all good. <laughs> but Legion as, was created by Nelson Kevich, who, who has this amazing art style. And uh, he's actually a big fan of David Lynch. And when Dune came out, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz did the uh, comic book adaptation. So in a way, like, it's almost like, you know, uh, you know you're, you're seeing David Lynch in it. But that's because David Lynch is within uh, Bill Sienkiewicz's almost dreamlike work at times. So yeah, it's so almost it's like a, a big tribute. surprise that you're making that, that. Yeah, yeah, you're seeing, you're seeing, you know, the influence being pulled out of it. One of the aspects of dreams is also the fact that, like, aside from, you know, not knowing who's dreaming, um, is it's like the characters get mixed up. So I guess, like, that's one of the reasons why a lot of the characters tend to, you know, kind of behave like each other. And uh, there are times when, like, I guess, like a classic scene, which, which I don't know uh, how to what length you went into, uh, is the scene between uh, Jeff and uh, Frank, when Frank puts on the lipstick and, like, he's assaulting him. Um, it kind of like is reminiscent of Frank's interactions with um, Dorothy as well as later Jeff's interactions with Dorothy as well. Like, and they all have like that, both of those dimensions and like they're kind of, you know, when, when it happens each time, it feels like it's, it, they're repeating themselves. But also when this scene happens, it's, it's jarring. And like, you kind of realize that like, essentially they're similar interactions or the same interactions or they can be mirrored against each other. So there's yeah. a line that um, I stole for a song uh, that is uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And I think of, uh, you know, Dennis Hopper's character and Kyle MacLachlan's character that are rhyming, you know, and how does that turn out? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Frank says, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. That's like a, my love letter to you. Does that happen? No. Jeffrey puts the bullet into Frank's head. That was his love letter to him. There's so many, like, like the whole, the whole film is very mirrored. Like we were talking about the relationships that people have with one another, mirroring the relationships they have with their respective abuser or the person who's like bringing them to the, uh, the dark side of Lumberton. But I mean, even in that way, it's like so, so many things that you expect to happen one way just are flipped like him shooting Frank instead of Frank shooting him. Um, I don't know. I just really loved this movie. I love it. I think it's fucking fantastic. Great film. I've seen it <laughs> three times now. I don't know, but every time I've enjoyed it more. <laughs> I think yeah. like uh, with, uh, since you're talking about, and again, like this, I guess brings it back to Sandy. Uh, I have a question of like, uh, how much of the characters in Blue Velvet are uh, actually just archetypes and what are the archetypes for? Um, and like, I think um, you, you brought up the abuser and the, the victim archetype and like basically they all like switch roles at least to an extent. Um, and another archetype that kind of comes into the picture, like I, f I feel like it's the, the Dorothy Valance character um, and, the, and Sandy 
are kind of almost uh, the opposite of what used to be the the kind of standard for women in a, in a kind of way in the 60s and so on, which is kind of the era that it's throwing back to, which is that like Dorothy Valens would be more of the Madeline character and the um, Sandy would be more of the Jackie character, but like the blonde one is the is the Jackie character and the Madeline character is Dorothy, who's the dark haired one. So it's kind of like an inversion of that as well. Uh, the two archetypes. Yeah, I mean, is- I also I also think that there's an interesting um, thing with what I what I was saying earlier about um, like you know villainy villainy and showing that like you know Frank isn't the only villain. I think in the same way that like you know Sandy like kind of just living this uh, normal Lumberton life, like she's kind of our our um, I, I guess she's kind of our eyes into what that normal life looks like. So suburban, you have, yeah, like so- Sandra D type of. Mm-hmm. Character yeah. in a way. She's going to high school, and everyone at the high school is like, "Wow, a guy with a car. That's you know, he's gonna pick you up. He's so handsome. Like, just this yeah. whole, this whole like, you know, normal, boring life that you know is on the surface, and she really is the surface character. Um, and then it feels like each character kind of goes deeper, right? Like in, into that like sadomasochistic evil, uh, you know, cesspool of of a town that actually exists under the surface. But then throughout the movie, like the only way that you know Sandy really sees that part of it is through uh, Kyle McLaughlin's character, who, who is pulling her into, or trying to kind of uh, entice her into that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like the idea of like, you know, like you have like, you know, the the nice clean cut and then like the femme fatale type of character. It's always the blonde, the pure innocent one. And the brunette is the one that's, you know, has a, is seductive and mysterious and- mm, But it's slumbers. the other way around, right? Like, is, isn't it the other way around usually? in in like movie history itself like the noah character the, the blonde one will always be the devious one yeah. and it's and it's kind of like seen as a sign of promiscuity and all of that and but in this case like the the square is the uh, the blonde one and the and the one that's uh, promiscuous or like the the one that's questionable is the is the dark haired one which i think was like a kind of inversion that suggests like i feel like a, a kind of i don't i don't know what the is it an inversion only or is there like a subversion going on and, and is this like a sign of the subversion that the I, movie is doing i think it also has to do with like the post like noir like era like because in the 50s at least uh a lot of like hollywood was changing so they would portray like the blondes as you know the clean cut goody two shoes and the brunettes would be more uh, dark, mysterious, and even psychotic at some points. So it was really all about how the evolution of Hollywood was, because the 1950s was like the clean suburban, you know, rebel, like, you know, conservative, go up, you know, rock and roll was not really a thing until like the late 50s. So there was a bit of like a post uh, uh, noir era of Hollywood that was like bubblegum clean. So, and I well, guess, I mean, we really how to trade that. It's neo-noir, right? Like it's it's an yeah. attempt to take back the aesthetic stylings of uh, you know the golden age of Hollywood's uh, version of noir, and which in in itself is kind of this darkness that kind of um, overwhelms everything, and this uh, feeling for the first time that like our institutions are failing, which is really where um, you know this pop cultural influence on that is really where the noir genre comes from. You know what I mean? Like like the reason that they rely on detectives so much, private detectives are like Seamuses as they you know as their title in, in a lot of the pulp, uh, the pulp novels. Like, um, the reason that they trust those detectives is because, you know, the police force has failed, but, like, much in the way that, uh, you know, you can't really, in, in a lot of places, like, show, like, the, the government failing. The Hays Code wouldn't let you show the government failing. So you had to have somebody that was government adjacent to kind of save the day, but, like, 
but also showing that like the the police were useless and like you know the institutions in the town were useless people were corrupt like that kind of comes through in this later era but like now you can kind of have people have sex and you don't have to apply as many things and you know what i mean like it's not like so it's this taking back of that genre um i think in a form that in, in some cases at least in a form that um that like more that in, in a form i guess that fully realizes it um in that sense this is and I just want to address to Matt Gilbert real quickly, as long as it's a Pabst Blue Bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm so, Ravon, I think you got a point. I, I got, I'm going to tag that in a second. Okay. Ravon, I just go. wanted go right to ahead. say, sorry. like, that was a perfect segue into something that, like, I wanted to discuss was David Lynch's obsession with, a, with the good cop. He does have uh, an obsession with, the good cop and we see it you know i mean in Twin Peaks, they're all good cops yeah right they're all good cops but here Rare. you have the corrupt police officer but he's uh you know we see at the very end of the film the police are already you know uh engaging in a sting operation against frank and against the, like it, it wasn't news to them about this corrupt uh police officer and you can kind of read it on i can't remember his name but the detective What's Wilson? Some bet that's so. Be yeah. The yeah, yellow Betty's, man. Betty's dad oh. is um, you know, when he's shown the pictures of the uh his partner, the, he he doesn't seem surprised to see him there. And he and he doesn't like make any sort of like he doesn't have a reaction to seeing him there. And it, it sort of like lays the groundwork for this operation that has already been, you know, the groundwork's already being laid to you know get frank and they it seems like he already has this you know the, the police force at large already you know knows that this is going down you know they are the good cops he is the one corrupt cop versus sort of you know i mean as as a left as leftists we have ideas of all cops are bastards all cops are bad um and i don't know and i mean i try not to like look too much into David Lynch's politics because by and large they suck nuts. He has good opinions, but like his his politics are sort of like, this is how I feel. I'm a crazy person. I'll vote however I want. Yeah, like he has like <laughs> no of, real like, ideology. He falls into like the populist mentality, I think, rather than like a any kind of overt like leftist. Like we need to kind of I mean the kind of um like the the misreading almost of like heighten the contradictions, which you know what I mean? Like we need to disrupt the we need to disrupt like the 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 status quo in any way possible like i remember him saying oh well donald trump's saying some interesting things but he like he wasn't in endorsing him but like it's this kind of um but i feel like the, this filmmaking kind of is the same way like it's mm -hmm. he, like this obsession with like you know the little guy uh rising up this obsession with like the good cop you know this town is is falling apart and it's like you know it's rotting out from the inside but he can't quite like like there still has to be a good cop and there still has to be you know someone that um actually wants to solve the murder like it's not this darkness kind of doesn't pervade everything like there, there has to be yeah. some like a uh, logic to it almost. That that's a through line through a lot of his stuff too is the fact that and, and I wouldn't I would put it less I, I think it would be simplistic to call it like a you know a cop fetish or like you know savior complex. Not that anyone here was doing that, but like the important thing is like to show the darkness in all its its void like terror, but then show that there's always light. That's absolutely the David Lynch jam, and whether he gets it or not. All right, but that's like what he's trying to do, even for something like Eraserhead, which is basically the most, uh, the, the most crazed parable for like unwanted pregnancies I think I've ever seen in my entire life. 
Uh, and I say that as a fan, you know, uh, but having nothing to do with literally any of that, since we've had a lot of uh, beer comments in the in the comments section, I want to talk about the usage of beer brands in Blue Velvet, specifically things like, um, you know, there's, there's I, I'm going to let someone else take the quote. You don't need to hear it from me. But also like Laura Dern's dad. Well, he drinks Budweiser. That's a signifier, right? Which is a really, it's then, a really weird moment, by the way, when uh, when when Kamen Golf is like, oh, the king of beers and seems so disappointed that she hasn't had a Heineken. Like, Yeah, because he, at the time, Heineken was like what beer snobs uh, drank, which is why Dennis Hopper's character gets so fucking worked up about it. And like... <laughs> Basically, I don't know about I don't know about y'all, but like, you know, every house party I ever went to any like after party after show or whatever. Anytime somebody would say Heineken, there'd be some wit that goes Heineken and then they would do the line. I'm not going to do it. We all know. <laughs> the line. Come on. You don't need me to do this. But it's it's, it's like to me, it that's like, like, wanna, it seems like you really right? want to do this. It seems like you really want to take the line. I really don't. But see, I don't but, know. It just seems like you want to take the line. But Heineken was the, I'm not going to do it for us. I'm sorry. The Heineken was like the considered like a more like uh, upper class, like uh, um, upper class beer at the time. Whereas PBR is the working man's beer. Right. And then, and then all of these like people that like all this cheap, crappy beer that tastes like turpentine after you have the first one, they all have their little camps that they're in. There's the Budweiser camp. There's the PBR camp. There's like hams. There's Ole in the Pacific Northwest. And it's all terrible. And it's all like, you know, you know, closer to urine than beer, frankly. But like everyone has opinions about it. And it's like this this kind of analog for, uh, you know, the brand identity as social stratification. And in some cases, class. And I think that that's something that I, I, I never thought about that when I saw this at 17. But I definitely think about it now. How much of the stratification is like uh, just class as well as like intergenerational is another thing that I wanted to like point out because uh, clearly the, the, there's like violence being passed down, uh, you know, between people and like uh, there's definitely two tiers of characters. There's the younger uh, ones and then there's the older ones and um, and stuff like that. So uh, that's also another factor that I thought I'd throw in. Uh, Are Karthik and I the only ones going to talk about this this beer thing? I think it's pretty interesting. No, I I, I think it's I think it's interesting and it connects them. It connects. Let's it have a joke, Karthik. Just you and me. We'll do it. So I, sorry, I, I was just reading the comments. I you know? don't like beer. <laughs> comments are killed. dude. I'm I'm sitting here drinking like a, a mid grade Pinot Noir, like the fancy lad that I am. Uh, well it's, it's also but it's a way of connecting to the to the brand identity of i mean of class but also to like the small town element of it right like everybody kind of it's relatable like everybody has a beer brand that they like but at the same time it kind of um because it's alcohol and because it's you know uh associated with so many like you know like like trouble in general you know what i mean like it kind of um allows it to keep that like seedy uh underbelly style of of you know of connection without um you know without without really like of exploring something that maybe would be relatable but wouldn't take you down that rabbit hole like everybody drinks beer but at the same time like you know excessive drinking obviously like you know um can lead you down the path of your brain like basically rotting out like so it's it's kind of this uh it's kind of the same kind of duality and like you know the, the whole idea of like prohibition kind of and the moral panic behind drinking and alcohol and you know what i mean so it kind of still creates that um it, it allows it to keep like it allows it to make that connection while still retaining um the 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 cd underbelly style i think and if i may just real quick to tag that like i think it's fascinating that the frank character like 
Kamakaka's character is just trying to like get through, right? He's just trying to survive the night, and he thinks it's a relatively innocuous question. I don't know. I guess I'll have a Heineken. And like the overreaction is like classic Frank. And like, no, you were in a dangerous place. Like you, like you thought that was like a nothing question. Like even that, that even was laden with uh, all kinds of traps for you, and you fell into it by answering and by existing. Yeah, and to that end, as long as we're talking about this sequence of events, uh, I think that David Lynch does a fantastic job of per- like uh, portraying an experience I think a lot of people have had, which is the night that you never expected to happen in your life. I very much related to this because th- there have been... I grew up in a very working-class neighborhood. I have a lot of friends that are involved in sus-ass shit. There were many nights where I was like, how the fuck did I end up in this situation? How did I end up here? Uh, And watching that sequence, I so felt like Jeffrey in that moment. I was like, I have done this. Not this exact thing. Not this exact (laughs) sequence of events, of course. But like, I have been at a buddhist temple party where people ended up shooting up into the air and lying (laughs) to the monks telling them that it was fireworks i was at a house party where the the host's father was on life support in one of the the bedrooms and his male nurse came in blasted out of his mind with a gun screaming at everybody and i just so much related to that moment where you're like how the fuck did I get here? Like, is this it? Am I, is this going to be the end of the road for me at this absolutely absurd, ridiculous moment in time? Is this how it ends? Like it, it just, I don't know. Very, very much. I related to that moment. And it, it just think that he portrayed it in a way, like, of course it's absurd, but we've all found ourselves in situations that felt very absurd and found ourselves in positions where we thought I shouldn't be here. And like, it was just very relatable. I, I loved, I yeah. loved that sequence of events. I can relate. I, I was in New York city on New Year's Eve and I'm like, why did I come here today? <laughs> I'm like, is this it? Like, is this going to be it? I'm only 13. I'm just here to see a Broadway show, but there are cops telling me to go in dark alleys and, and avoid, you know, big crowds. And I'm like, uh, I'm just trying to get to like Penn station. <laughs> well, it's like the darkest, more most surreal version of like After Hours or something, right? You know, where, where, where which is a brilliant movie as well. But yeah, like there's not that many movies that can adequately have captured that sense of adventure, but also that sense of imminent danger. Like not just danger, imminent danger. Like you know, oh, yeah. this could go south like in a, in like the next ten seconds. I feel like you're describing, um, and I what I've always thought, and I. I, I Please pardon me if you've already discussed this. Uh, what I've always thought was kind of like the the, the kind of core of uh, Blue Velvet, which was uh, a kid who living through the nightmare of watching his parents have sex and uh, kind of like uh, watching it from uh, within the closet. And uh, and I mean, I, I shout out obviously to Slavoj Žižek uh, for, you know, like inspiring this line of thought uh, through his movie. Um, kind of like if, if once he stays for the show, it gets weirder and and i and i guess that's kind of where that nightmare goes like i feel like that's kind of uh jeffrey's um alice you know going through the rabbit hole of uh watching his watching his parent parental figures 
kind of like enact the edipal complex like right before his eyes and then what happens after that and and that's kind of like a fascinating line of interpretation interpretation because like that then you get to like wonder what's actually happening who are these people and like why why are they giving him these kind of weird nightmares so this kind of like ties back to whose dream is it and like the question of whether this is jeffrey's nightmare becoming sandy's dream um i guess like that's a that's a kind of uh, way to look at this narrative there's also a weird there's also a weird dialectic of um he's he's simultaneously both daddy and the baby like frank, the frank character so he's like he's jumping in between these two things as you know like this this uh child kind of that's you know um like that's sub subservient i guess to her as a mother figure and then taking control as like the daddy figure and and being the dominant one and it's like this weird but like but it's every other line which obviously makes sense when he's you know uh indulging in in all kinds of nitrous oxide stuff you know right right into his face and, and going more and more crazy but like there's a it seems like he's almost like i was i, I made a zizak joke on twitter earlier when i was like talking about the dialectic and how, like holding those two those two uh, identities and truths in your mind at the same time like of, of like both the the baby and the daddy <laughs> but it still is it's this like um it's this really, really uh, crazy um, like uh, switch off that happens, and and it's very Freudian, I think, like in a lot of ways. This movie, you know, kind of uh, they it, even touch like even like one of the bigger like themes or whatever is like oh the Oedipus complex. We all know about the Oedipus and the Electra complexes is where you're where it's all you know it's I think it's sex and aggression were the two main things. Uh, Seymour Freud said that like. Uh, controlled like your life, which I'm like, I'm more of an Eric Erickson type of gal, but um, the whole idea of like a young child lusting after the parent and wanting to be like the role of the opposite of the other parent, the parent that they're like wanting to be or whatever. I'm like, it's just all about attention. It's all about favorite parents. Like it's nothing sexual. Like Sigmund Freud, just snort some more cocaine, please. <laughs> Well, the other the other I think interesting thing to Carthage's point too is that um, the one character that kind of remains grounded in like the the you know the Lumberton world of uh, things kind of being seemingly nice is Sandy, and we see both of her parents in multiple scenes. We kind of understand that her her father like she never really has this like father complex throughout the entire movie. Everybody else really does have some form of that, and we never really see Kyle MacLachlan's parents. I mean, you see like the mom and the grandma or whatever sitting there. We never really engage with those characters. Um, besides that, like one scene or whatever, we 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 never see. You know, obviously, we never see Dorothy's whatever. The only other is the kid, and we don't even see the kid. So it's like the only way that kind of uh, the you know, Sandy remains tethered, I guess, fully is that we see both of her parents, and her parents are like taking an interest. But everyone else has like these weird Oedipal issues that you know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, speaking Boy. of uh, Oedipal complex and like you know, uh, wanting attention, uh, I feel like. Uh, maybe this has a lot to do with the age i was when i watched blue velvet and um, and all that like i was like i think i was like 15 or something um and then i was simultaneously watching uh, the spider-man movies with toby Maguire, and i was i couldn't help but like see the kind of similarities between peter parker and uh cal mclachlan's character and like to be honest like i i think that like they have an almost parallel na narrative like i feel like they go through the same arc except that like kyle mclachlan's becoming spider-man uh involves like an actual you know confrontation with the darker side of like him you know uh, in, like confronting the fact that like his uncle ben is actually like the frank character not 
uh, a goodie to wow. shoes, Uncle Ben, but like somebody who's uh, leading him down a more darker path and like he's Psychopath. got to like, resist that uh, rather than like, you know, fall into it. Uh, but like, I feel like the desires are kind of similar. Would, would Uncle Ben, would Uncle Ben Frank say, uh, say, with with great power comes no responsibility? Yeah. <laughs> also, exactly. Yeah. Did we all watch the new trailer, uh, by the way? So we say that the Dennis Hopper is the libertarian version of Uncle Ben. <laughs> libertarian make age of consent. <laughs> I I will say like as long as we're talking about like Oedipal complexes that is definitely something that david lynch has a fascination with i mean we see it in twin peaks overtly like that is i i've never seen a film that has more overt like uh you know relation to that uh, or you know a series than twin peaks and we you know see it here well, it the touches Sopranos. on it but you know literally Sopranos like is, is the only other like yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, in Twin Peaks, she's she's raped by her father, and you know, seemingly uh, has a strong, you know, to some extent, consensual relationship with, you know, a demon that is possessed by her father. Um, uh, but but I mean, it, it is like a an interesting aspect of David Lynch because he has this fascination with you know psychosexual relationships, despite being. And I described him before as this, and I will again, a literal Boy Scout, a troop leader. Like, this man won't swear. Like, uh, he, I, I was listening to an interview with Great Dennis team. Hopper. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to an interview with uh, Dennis Hopper where he's, like, talking about how uh, how David Lynch was telling him how to say the word fuck but refused to say it. Like, this man is, like, straight edge. <laughs> but has, and, and that's, like, this aspect of voyeurism that we see in Jeffrey. He loves to look in. David Lynch loves to look in on this, but will not participate in it. And I, I think that that is, it comes across in a lot of his films and uh, different projects. But, like, here, so explicitly, you see David Lynch in the Jeffrey character, uh, and I mean, he has a fascination with Kyle MacLachlan as an actor. He, you know, and he does. He he like creates relationships with actors and loves to envision them in the roles that he creates. But like, but here he like you he really sees himself in Kyle MacLachlan and in the Jeffrey character and writes that character. You know, in in into my you know view, we don't know because he refuses to answer questions about this. But like, uh, you know, is is creating this character in the way that he is creating the film as an outsider looking in yeah no a hundred a hundred percent i got that feeling throughout the entire movie too and um interestingly i think um you know the fact that jeffrey as a character is in over his head the entire movie like to the point where it's like he, he doesn't really like there's not really a point in him being in it besides kind of to be like the, the the you know the savior detective person and to get us further into this but the story kind of like might have ended the same way even if um with somebody else killing frank like even if there was no kyle mclaughlin character and it feels like um david lynch is kind of inserting himself into into it the same way like writing a, a screenplay about like you know state of masochism and, and and like uh you know just as evil and all this stuff like has david lynch felt like he's uh, delved into something that he doesn't quite understand and gone too far deep into it and just like there it's no turning around from that um, to your point of uh, yeah. you know the the unwillingness to swear uh, i feel like that that's something that you touched on something pretty uh, fantastic i feel like 
because the Frank character swears like pretty much every other sign. And it's almost like he doesn't even know how to swear or something. It's like a kid swearing. Um, mm-hmm. And what is interesting is like this is this sounds like it was written by somebody who doesn't know how to swear swearing. Um, yeah. And the, the second thing about that was that like uh, k- kind of um, the the importance of uh, Frank's character because he, every time he has to take that drug uh, in order for him to like, you know, feel that desire, um, I, it comes through because like it, it almost seems like uh, David Lynch wants to portray through Kyle, Mac- Kyle McLachlan's character that like he sees the person that he is. And this is what like, I, I guess, touches on the idea of intergenerational, what you're inheriting from. Uh, the boomer generation, so to say, um, is like that impotence. And uh, David Lynch seems to suggest through Kyle MacLachlan's character that like, you know, you're uh, some some sort of like Gen X, I don't know, uh, nihilism towards that. I don't know if uh, Kyle MacLachlan's character would be like Gen X or would be actually the boomer. I don't know exactly what the intergenerational handover here is, but it seems be like... The early it side Gen that... X, I think, if I may, as, as right. a generational expert. <laughs> I, I, I feel like it's it suggests like the the, the younger generation that what, is seeing that the what older. Uh, Dave Rubin called himself in that one clip where he uh, Gen expert. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let, let me retract that statement. Then I don't want to be associated with that. Though. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, just to finish, we're dunking on Dave Rubin. <laughs> just to finish that thought, I I feel like uh, the the younger character sees the older character as a sort of person that he's not supposed to emulate, as opposed to that he should emulate and. Uh, I guess like that explains also the fact that he doesn't want to swear because he sees the older character as like this complete uh, clown uh, slash like violent person who uh, takes a drug and swears and like has no control over himself. Uh, and, and maybe a character who doesn't swear feels like that's a form of self-control. He's all id. Yeah. Rank is all id. Period. Um. Thank you. Which is which is no, but like is a similar thing also. I think to the idea of um, and then and then Rivan, I'll ask you your final thoughts uh, when 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 I I guess finish this thought. But um, it's the same thing with the you know with Frank's character kind of demanding the bourbon. I think it's it's kind of this weird relationship to like the father the father figure like a hundred percent like and and like a kid almost looking up at the father figure and seeing them cursing and seeing them drinking and seeing them taking drugs and really losing control. And like, and and then and then you know, Kyle McLaughlin losing control himself and hitting Dorothy, and then the flames like you know rearing up behind him. It seems like he's kind of following down that same path. And I, I think that inherently, like inherently, that is a father son dynamic, right? Like that is um, in the same way that his own dynamic with the Dean Stockwell character um, is is uh, like like is kind of following on that same track too. But uh, Ravana, your final thoughts for. Uh, 1140. Sorry. Yeah. Apologies. I do have to run, but, um, final thoughts. I, I didn't get to discuss, like talk about this, but I, I feel very strongly that David Lynch has does an amazing job at capturing the innocuous and integrating that into his films, because there are scenes where it's like, we all know that this stuff is going on, but you know, not everyone in this world does. Like the people who work at the Beaumont shop with him, the blind man and the person who is like his assistant, you know, uh, Jeffrey's character is is doing things that are like scary to him and like horrifying. And he's engaged in these sort of like illicit activities and they are just yucking it up over there, like laughing and like 
and that is very real. You know, you, you know, when you're going through something as a person, not everyone in your life knows that and you have to continue to exist in the world. <laughs> and, um, and these things are happening and you see it again with, uh, when he goes to pick up Sandy and her boyfriend catches them, like to the boyfriend, that's the worst thing in the world. But to all of us, we're like, shut the fuck up, Mike. There's a million other things going on. Yeah, that, Why that are part you letting it, this get to you? <laughs> that part of it was like my favorite part of the whole movie. I think um, one of them is like when the guy comes out to fight him and like, you're just like, listen, like compared to like <laughs> Frank or something like Kyle McLaughlin has gotten the shit beat out of him so many times in this movie. Like you're, you're speaking to shit out of him. is going to do anything. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was, it's just like fantastic. I don't know. I, I very much, I love the film. I think that, I, David Lynch is my favorite producer. I I love him. I, I'm fascinated by him, particularly by the way that he refuses to answer questions about his works. I I think that he is the prototypical Sigma male. Will not. <laughs> I he, he he just like ducks and dives any sort of question about it. And you know we'll always say the the films exist. You are you know you watch them. Uh, figure out what's going on. You know, interpret what's going on. You know, I, there's no outside context that is necessary for my films. I'm not going to provide that outside context. Uh, I, I I just think that he is such an interesting character and, and always sort of writes himself into his projects uh, in a very relatable way. But yeah, this film is fantastic. I It's difficult to watch, you know, the first time through everyone is like, oh, yeah, this man's going to die. Like, you know, if you know anything about David Lynch, you're like, there's no universe in which he doesn't die at the end. He will die. <laughs> so, like, having this, like, dream-like ending where everyone is happy is just, like, such a subversion of what you expect from David Lynch. From start to finish, opening to closing sequence, uh, one of my favorite films I've ever seen. I love it. All right. Those are my final thoughts. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. All right. Have a good rest of your show. <laughs> Bye. Um, do you guys want to get to the... Uh, I knew I was going to be friends with her, by the way. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. No. Well, I was going to yeah. say, get it. No, how, no. how many similarities between this movie and Black Swan, surprisingly, there are which I think we're going to maybe cover on this particular show. Yeah. Cause I haven't seen the black swan. Like I've seen, I've seen it's it's literally my favorite movie of all time. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's why some smart fella decided to, we should do it on the show. Right. So, <laughs> yes. Who is that guy? Give him a raise. <laughs> Or pay him at all? No. <laughs> no. Um, so I'm. Uh, yeah. So introducing this segment, I guess you know, as we keep doing. Um, this is our our letterboxed one-liner uh, reviews. Um, Conan finds like you know a few of these. Um, I guess there's five. Which last night I think there was ten. Um, it was Roadhouse, but, of course. There was ten. Yeah, but like so, these are these are just one-liner reviews from Letterbox that um that that you know are just either funny or uh, poignant or something, or written by David Lynch. No, but worth right. Of course, Letterbox is a social media site for film lovers. Uh, Moving Extravaganza is on it. Follow Moving Extravaganza with Space for us. You can follow me as well. Andrew's on there. Uh, it's great. It's a place to discuss films, 
make jokes about film. <laughs> you can also use it to log things you want to see as well as things you have seen. Uh, it's a great resource. They aren't paying us anything, but uh, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, sponsor us. What this is free. But they could. They could. This is free content. I just... I, I love seeing what the masses come up with. This is this is talk about bottom up democracy. This is bottom up film reviewing. So let's, yeah, uh, which is a, a like one of the most gatekeeped uh, professions. Otherwise, fucking ain't right. All right, here we go. Dean Stockwell could have punched me in the stomach like he did with Kyle McLaughlin any day. <laughs> there. All right, number two. Dennis Hopper's breathing is scarier than Vader's. Pat Harris. <laughs> And you and in what? that trailer, and like in that, that trailer, I think, right? Like at the beginning, we watched the the trailer where it was just him breathing heavily into the uh, the entire time. That was like incredibly disorienting. Scary AF. I, I back that. Well, mark me down as scared and horny. Kyle McLaughlin, probably. <laughs> Tarantino <laughs> with that particular Bon Mott. There's a there's a really there's a there's a clip that I had pulled that we didn't get to watch, but it's but him. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin like is like talking about how this movie is erotic. And he's like, it's it's an extremely erotic movie. <laughs> yeah, if you say so. That David Lynch is such a visionary. He made a movie about an ear from Reservoir Dogs six years before it just got cut off. Hunter Strawberry. Wow, and only three and a half stars still. Like this was a, this was a, someone who's a soothsayer, man. Like someone who actually came up with stuff that came in the future. <laughs> some 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 reviewers on Letterboxd are hard asses. Like, and I've actually gone back. I realized I've become more of a softy as I've used the site more. Like, I, like, there's movies I love. I'm like, wow, three and a half, really? Like, this is I love this film. But anyway, <laughs> then I'm like, free guy, five stars, quintessential home from college movie, Taylor Williams. <laughs> I think I gave him um, four stars. Anyway, I you know you you forget very fast that he's home from college and like that's his connection to you know what I mean like being back yeah. in this world and you like you forget yeah. about the dad because like you do see you see the dad you know, dried eyed bushy tailed. Like, do the, anyway, do the box, point of place for film yeah. follow the show uh, we we need to get a rap going on this like we've done it like seven times we should probably get like a, a thing for it anyway sorry Carthy go ahead <laughs> yeah yeah sorry I, I I didn't realize that you were still doing a bit um, but but I just like wanted to say um, it it seems like the like to the point of eroticism, I feel like this movie is, if anything, explicitly anti-erotic, and that actually, I would, uh, I wish like uh, Rewana was here because uh, I think the point to the point of like I think David Lynch being goody two shoes, Boy Scout, I feel like he almost comes across as like sexually kind of like conservative in a sort of way that he's got like a lot more fears than desires uh, as far as like sexuality is concerned, and and every time the the that it's portrayed, it's almost like a nightmare scenario in his movies. Um, and, and it's kind of like, uh, I guess, like Kyle uh, going through this experience, uh, uh, Jeffrey uh, is kind of like a part of the reckoning that it's like he's actually afraid of it rather than someone who's, you know, embracing his sexuality or embracing well, he, his desire. He seems to want to do like missionary, like, you know what I mean? Like just kind of mis like missionary. Yeah. And then it seems like he's getting pulled deeper and deeper into like the, the sadomasochistic side of it. Um, even, 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 uh, like even to the point where she kind of, uh, provokes him into hitting her. Like, you know what I mean? Which is something that like, he obviously doesn't want to. And then he's drawn into doing that. And like, uh, you know, with, with like, it's no longer from a place of just like, uh, sexuality It's from a place of like actual annoyance and anger at that point, which is why I think the, the thing flares up behind him and the tie in between that anger and which isn't, it would, would be, I guess, an interesting psychological, uh, question if somebody asked David Lynch about it, like, is is some of his uh, Boy Scoutness 
a fear of whatever's going on inside of his head that allows him to come up with this stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Because, like, if he's, like... Fear, oh, of, uh, fear of female desire, I feel like. And I think, uh, or, like, at least a desire that he doesn't, real, uh, like, identify with or, or something like that. Because I think uh, the whole Which point... Is a common is, noir thing, by the way. There's a lot of right. uh, fear of female yeah, desire. Yeah, David Lynch didn't invent that. Let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I invented that. Anyway. Give him credit, goddammit. Um... Yeah, so I guess going into this, uh, into the final thoughts, because um, I, I do want to try to keep it up at the consecutive viewers so we can hopefully get affiliate from this last couple of days of these. Get the bees, <laughs> um, people. That's why I host you guys on my channel, so it can get some more attention. Yeah. Um, so I guess starting with uh, starting with Carthy, because he was the last to come on. Um, final thoughts. Oh, wow. Uh, so... I, I guess like it's it's hard to sum any uh, David Lynch movie uh, up in like any kind of uh, like narrative that you can like easily get away with. But in the case of Blue Velvet, I feel like this is the closest that you ever get to a straightforward David Lynch movie, if you can ever call it that. Um, and I think that like essentially it is when I was a kid uh, watching it, I guess you probably have not watched it as a kid um, like at at 15 uh, but i did like watch it subsequently uh, a little bit later as well uh, but i always remembered uh, you know being as i guess like it's it's, it's a little bit uh, silly to admit this at this point but like as enamored with uh, isabella rossellini's character as like the Kyle McLachlan character was and having exactly the same experience that he had and like going through the horror of like you know at that age i feel like uh, i kind of was also uh, like I didn't have any obviously any actual experience uh, with any sort of desire being uh, fulfilled uh, le- like you know let alone um, you know being able to uh, go through the kind of nightmare scenario that Kyle McLachlan goes through uh, but I felt like that's how it would have felt to uh, to go through something like that and at that time I remember like identifying with the fears and the desires uh, but I think now that I'm like looking back on it I wonder if the desires and the fears are actually a more intergenerational kind of handover that, uh, you know, is, is happening in, in basically the context of like suburbia and uh, what the Gen X is inheriting from uh, the boomers and like basically uh, how it wants to see itself, like what its senses of optimism and all that are. And I feel like the kind of optimism coming through the Sandy character rather than uh, the Jeff character kind of fits for me. I, I guess like that's why I would, if I were to summarize uh, this movie, I would think that it starts off as like Jeff's nightmare um, and it becomes Sandy's dream. And I think like I, I kind of said it earlier and I think that's a that's a nice way of looking at it. And, and in a way, Sandy's dream is to involve Jeff in her life. And it, that's kind of like, I feel like a way in which maybe David Lynch also sees as a sort of journey of his kind of, you know, existential crisis. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Good. Good. Final thoughts. I don't have really much to add to that. Um, Christina, final thoughts. I'm a David Lynch aficionado. I love his films, and Blue Velvet's probably like my favorite film of his. I mean, I just love everything about it. I love the aesthetics. I I love the pacing. Uh, even even the plot. I mean, there's a few things that I'm like, mm, little triggering, but I mean, I just I just love how he thought Blue Velvet. 
I want a movie titled Blue Velvet, and he created something from that. Even if it's a painful childhood memory of seeing seeing a woman naked. Uh, <laughs> but uh, maybe yeah. wore blue velvet. That's what yeah, like yeah, I should have wore blue velvet. <laughs> I didn't. I did not think of having. I mean, I, I'm having my loud singer arc happening right now because I feel like I would make a decent one. But uh, yeah, I mean, this this movie showed that Isabella Rossellini could be more than just a model. She she's a serious actress, and her her parents, you know, their talent definitely rubbed off on her. Um, this is definitely like more collabs between Kyle and David, as we've seen like in Twin Peaks. Um, you know, this this movie kind of also helped revitalize Dennis Hopper's career in a way. So, uh, like, 10 out of 10. <laughs> All right, Conan. Well, uh, you know, one-upping on Christina's point, which with our outfits, we should clearly take the show on the road, right? But uh, anyway, <laughs> I would also like to say that I pointed out earlier that also the music is so important in this movie and it's one of the ones that it makes the movie and it's so important also that the version of blue velvet's played that was the first collab with Lamente. And, and again i said it before i'll say it again is a decades-long collaboration and all of these things we think of like you know the, the absolutely somehow rated exactly right and underrated too twin peaks uh is be due to blue velvet blue velvet walks so twin peaks could run Right. Uh, so the, and there's a lot of, um, of of connecting threads that happens with Velvet, even if it was a bad movie, which it isn't, as we've established when I came in, Blue Velvet is actually <laughs> awesome. Uh, it would stand the test of time as an in, uh, as inspiration. Uh, and I would the one copy I want to say is the straight story is definitely a more straightforward uh, Lynch film than uh, Blue Velvet. That's all I'm going to say from from earlier. And I was like, I was Jeremy holding on that. I was like, but make sure to say that. Make sure to say the thing earlier <laughs> on. Uh, but I think it's incredible that like, look at how eminently quotable it is, but how weird it is. Like with all these like different characters that are like nightmares and, and, and dreams and it's all put together. It's light and dark. Um, you know, it's not noir, but it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. And it's part of like the new modern, we wouldn't be new anymore, American cinema that like it, there couldn't have been, you know, a lot of Hal Hartley. There couldn't have been, a, there certainly could have been a lot of, uh, well, I could name some names, but point of fact is that like, it was very, uh, it, it brought forth a lot of stuff, both, both good and bad. I think Blue Velvet, as I said, didn't love it when I first saw it. Every time I see it, I kind of like it a little more. And it's a harsh tote. Like there were scenes that are hard to take really hard to take like i'm someone yeah. that like I, I you know there has been there has been rape in every almost every woman in, in my life's life before like that's real that is real and it sucks but it also i'm not you know i'm, I'm gonna say it's okay it's not okay for me to say that but like it's a choice it's a choice and it's in there and it's not just in there to be there which i think is different from some movies that have it as like really that's the motivation Okay. I spit on your grave, for instance. I, I wasn't going to name names when you mentioned it earlier. Yeah. Uh, and also and then, Showgirls. You know, we just had a very long conversation about that with Showgirls when we talked about it with uh, with Gavin, with Kenzo. 
so last two things I'm going to quote because I'm the music guy here that uh, I'm going to quote two bands. One is the Butthole Surfers, which is that, uh, you know, the, the, the line that opens the, the song. It's better to regret the things in life that you have done than the things you haven't. I think about Blue Velvet a lot when I think of that line. And the other one will be The Residents, which is that pain and pleasure are the twins that slightly out of focus spin around us until we finally understand that everything that gives us pleasure also gives us pain to measure it by. Deep. Um, Andy? You, you create a snap. That's what we do in poetry readings. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are doing it. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like I'm back at the old DSA meeting. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, Andy, I, I think most everybody kind of hits on my closing thoughts. I, I did want to just point out a uh, high point of um, uh, David Lynch and Antonio. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to get his name right. Bottomente uh, um, uh, is Julie Cruz's cover of Elvis's classic song "Summer Kisses Winter Dreams" uh, from the. Uh, yeah, I, I would have to say just just like of their collaborations, I think that is their best. But but uh, I'm going to end this, uh, my, my closing thoughts, much like David Lynch probably would. Uh, back in college, we had a, uh, we decided to have a party, but we we're all broke and we only had one can of Pabst Blue Ribbon. <laughs> and we passed the Pabst Blue Ribbon around and everybody thought it was the most disgusting drink we've ever had. And every single time we'd take a sip, we'd be like, let me have that shitty uh, drink again and drink it and be like, oh, it tastes like piss. And there's my closing <laughs> thoughts. And that's yeah, pap, pap, uh, you know, Pabst Blue Ribbon is not <laughs> is not very is not very appetizing. I can I like just the name of it even like sends a thing of my throat. But two two closing thoughts for me. First of all, Heineken, fuck that shit. Pabst Blue Ribbon. That's the first one. <laughs> and the second one, I I like uh, I like the line, "Stay alive, baby. Do it for Van Gogh." So with that, I'm gonna say, uh, you know. Stay alive, stay alive out there. We'll be, but we'll be back tomorrow for Dune, and that's going to be a, a nice conversation because we're back with Gene, and we have, I think, Jeremy Cumming and Renee. Like, we have a whole, we have a whole cast of characters tomorrow to talk 70, about. Seventy thousand people movie. on that one too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, peace out, everybody.